Thank you, Julia and Jacqueline. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, Paul or Ron would love to pick them up and we'll pray for you this coming week. Romans chapter one. Sometimes we'll come across a a friend or an acquaintance who really embraces a, a hobby, something that really interests them and they immerse themselves in learning and mastering this new curiosity and it could be bird watching or coin collecting or painting. Uh, theologian Alistair McGrath in his book, Intellectuals Don't Need God and Other Modern Myths, mentions such a friend uh, who collected stamps. And McGrath noted that his friend could tell him in detail everything he could possibly want to know about the watermarks of stamps issued during the reign of Queen Victoria by the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. McGrath McGrath acknowledged that he had no doubt that the accuracy was right, but it was totally irrelevant to his life. And a lot of people... Maybe you view Christianity that way. It's, I mean, really, you want to give your life to a 2,000-year-old religion? We're about progress. We're about moving on in this world. That's so yesterday. The sentiment is how people view the claims of the gospel, but, you know, we would hold up that our faith is anchored in history. Our faith is centered on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe his testimony is true. And it's not hero worship, he's alive. He's not dead, he's a living savior. So our confession to this world is that nothing or no one is more relevant than Jesus Christ. I would submit to you today, if you would have ears to hear and be open to investigate the claims, he's what you need most. He is God's response to your redemption. He's the center of history. He's the supreme figure of the Bible. He is humanity's only savior. He's the reason we're studying the book of Romans so that we might understand and savor the grace that has come to us through him. So maybe you're asking the question, why so much time on the book of Romans? And Lord, Pastor, you're taking us on a review of eight chapters. (laughs) I promise not to preach it all (laughs) over again. But sometimes we need to be reminded of ground that has been covered. And we have those who are joining us right now. So I don't want you to feel like, oh man, I'm behind. No, you're not behind. Each message is self-contained, but it's a part of a a, a bigger message in the book of Romans. So why are you giving so much time to it? Well, it's a biblical pattern of ministry. I'm finding, and I was able to watch, I'm kind of tied up on Sunday, so I can't visit other churches. So... Uh, you know, the last month or so, I've been watching more church services uh, than I ever am able to. And I'm finding more and more ministries are going for the gimmick, are going for the shallow, are going for uh, the entertainment aspect of church life. And God's word lays neglected in the course of their worship service with Few leaving the worship service, I would think, for any uh, challenge to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways. Um, So why are we giving so much time to the book of Romans? It's a biblical pattern of ministry. The apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I did not 
withhold from you declaring the full counsel of God. When I was with you, I was constantly challenging you in the scriptures. This is what God has said. This is what God has done. This is what God has called us to do and to be. I think another reason we're giving this time to Romans is really a longing for those under my pastoral care to be rooted and grounded in the gospel. I don't take that for granted, that this is something we need to return to over and over and over again. We never graduate from the gospel on what God has done through Christ on our behalf. He has given to us eternal life by faith in him, and it necessarily transforms how we view the world and how we live our lives. And then I think thirdly, the book of Romans would be used to equip us to give a defense of the hope that is within us and to do so with humility and gentleness and that we would really hold up the meaning we found in Christ, the hope that we found in Christ and to point others to him. So my approach to preaching and teaching is that the truths mined from the word of God are the most relevant of all news. It's news you can use for the rest of your life as you think about what God has said and how to lead you. And so I'm reminded of the comments of Frederick Godot who pointed out that every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected with the teaching set forth in the book of Romans. If anyone wants a detailed account of the key truths of the Christian faith, there's no better book in which to look than the book of Romans. So I want to provide maybe a reminder Maybe some fresh insights as we move through a review of chapters 1 through 8 that we might begin in verse 18 next week of chapter 8. So why are we giving so much time to this? Seven points that won't take seven days, I promise. Here we go. You ready? To understand the swirling winds of rebellion, uncertainty, and confusion that dominates the world. Romans chapter 1. Paul anchors everything he's about to say in the fact that God called him to be an apostle in the gospel and that it says in verse 2, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So I'm wanting to declare to you the fulfillment of all that God has said prior to Jesus' coming, all that God has done with Jesus' coming, and declare to you how you might know this good news. It's anchored in history Romans was written with with the premise, without God's grace and life-giving power found in the gospel, we cannot please God on our own. Nor can we live the life that he's called us to live. Authentic Christianity is supernatural in its empowerment and worldview. What do you mean by rebellion, pastor, the swirling winds of rebellion? Well, you don't need much convincing on that, do you? It's just been... Incredible to see the Romans 1 lived out um, in this world. The rest of Romans 1 is a tracking of human depravity. And he picks up in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. You need to understand that God is a God of love, but friends, you don't understand that love properly unless you understand he's also a God of wrath. He's not schizophrenic. He's consistent. The wrath of God has been revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness. It's revealed in the present time. It is a judgment in and of itself. This wrath of God, that there is a judgment. And Jesus taught about this judgment. Jesus taught much about the wrath of God and that it's something you want to avoid. That's why he said John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the love of God, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the wrath of God. But by believing in him, you, you might know the forgiveness of God and to be transformed by his grace. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so I'm wanting you to be anchored in the gospel. I'm wanting you to be able to answer questions like this, um, that if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And that you would have a sense of, of grounding in the book of Romans to where you would say, Lord, I know this, it's not by my works. It's not by my good efforts or good intentions. I have no resume to give to you but one of failure and shame. You know all about it. My hope of ever being received by you is through the finished work of your son on my behalf. For by grace I'm saved through faith. And that not of myself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To be rooted in the gospel that God has saved me for his purposes because there's a lot of uncertainty today. I want you to be alert to this today on the many things that you hear um, through the social media, through YouTube, through the, uh, whatever avenue of intake you have. There are messages where you need to be alert to the winds of uncertainty and rebellion that howl. They don't just swirl, they're, they're, they howl through our culture. Who are you gonna live for? Where are you going to stand? Everybody talking about heaven isn't going there. And, you know, I can understand maybe a pushback there. Well, who do you think you are? I, I, okay, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm one, I'm one who's wanting to simply stand in the truths of what God has said, not whatever you're talking about. So I'm wanting to stand in gospel truth. Not everybody talking about heaven is going there. Salvation is viewed as an entitlement. Everybody's going there except the really bad people. And some subjective list is given. Romans 1 through, Romans 1 through 3 tells us that we're all in trouble. Every last one of us. And the beauty of this gathering is that we are here today because we know that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And our hope of being received by God is through the finished work of Christ our Lord. I was reminded of this, that you know, you, you can just custom craft your life, your faith. God can be whatever you want it to be. I was reminded of this when a congresswoman from South Carolina, I believe, addressed a conservative political prayer meeting. They were gathering uh, at an elect Tim Scott event. And she uh, said that she, she addressed the prayer group. She said that she woke up in bed with her fiance and he wanted her to stay. But she said that she didn't have time for that. She had to go to a prayer meeting. 
I appreciated Tom Askell's response. How thoughtful of Nancy Mace to delay fornication so she could show up for the candidate's prayer breakfast. And this is the real issue of the day. People think that they can live however they want, but it's okay. They believe in God or whatever, and everything's okay. It's not okay. The demands and the call of the gospel call us to be surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he has said. How can I be involved in behavior that is at odds with God's truth and think that I'm right with him? We need a massive disruption of the apple cart because not everybody who says they're following God are. We live in a day of pluralism. We believe in freedom of conscience. We believe genuine faith comes as a gift, not under compulsion. We are called to witness to the unique truth of Christ. And often people say, well, who are you to say what's true? Well, I'm not. But I'm quoting the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And upon his words, I will stand and he, I will follow. Notice secondly, We're giving time to Romans because we need to see our settled opposition to God, uh, an honest assessment of sin that is by and large ignored. Look with me at chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, the apostle uh, Paul references a number, a cluster of psalms uh, and Old Testament references that speak to what we are, who we are, apart from Jesus Christ. Would you listen to this scathing assessment? It says in verse 10, it is written. What does that mean? Jesus used that phrase in his ministry. It is written. That means it's been established. He's referencing the Old Testament, the Word of God. It's written. None is righteous, no, not one. But what about him? No, not him. What about her? Not her. There was only one righteous, actually. And he died on a cross. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In a world of information, isn't it amazing what you can do on the World Wide Web? I mean, anything you want to know. We live in an incredible, incredible age of information. But that doesn't lead us to understand who God is or even to seek him for who he is. And this isn't about just being religious. This is about uh, a true knowledge of the living God. There's no one righteous. There's no one who seeks for God, regardless of how religious a person may be. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Would you bring that into the equation of how you evaluate your life and how we evaluate others? There's none of us who does good in and of our flesh. And then he talks about our speech in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And we think, well, you know, that's not really me. Well, I think this is describing humanity, you and me apart from Jesus Christ. And I think if we're honest, we're capable of all things, wouldn't you? Notice verse 18. This is the capstone. 
There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear his law. They don't fear his judgment. They don't fear um, Christ. And so they live life for now. You know, if I were only living for this world and only living for the things of now, I'd be really upset about a lot of things. But if we understand that this world is passing away and everything in it, but he who does the will of God abides forever, it resets my focus a little bit. Um, Dr. Moeller said that we need the gospel, not moralism necessarily. Moralism is a false gospel because it takes morality out of the gospel context and it leads us to believe the self-delusion that we are moral and righteous in our efforts. We're good church people, whatever that, whatever that means. What does that mean? We're good church people. I hope we, you would never say that. We're sinners redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Notice thirdly, we're spending time in Romans to underscore the wonderful redemption found in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is one of the most important paragraphs in the Bible as it speaks of God's righteousness. How, how do I as an unrighteous sinner receive the righteousness of God? And here Paul talks about that, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. True righteousness would mean absolute conformity to the law. Every one of us have shattered that record. Our record is flawed. So how does righteousness come to us in our unrighteousness? And the answer to that is at the heart of the gospel. By faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to me so that God looks at me as a sinner believing and trusting and relying on his son. God looks at me as being righteous because of him. I want you to remember that when we sing our closing song this morning. Before the throne of God above, we have a savior. It's a strong and perfect plea. And that is where we rest. But notice in this passage, verse 23, all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Salvation is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. God in the, in, in the fullness of time put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood. I had a brother in our church say to me in this um, past um, six months or so that he was at um, a meeting for his work and he was asked to lead the prayer and he said, Brother Jim, I used it. I used it, Brother Jim. And I said, what did you use? He said, I used the word propitiation in my prayer. <laughs> and I picked up his arm and I said, way to go. That's a wonderful word to know that God propitiated his wrath against us. And here in context it says, God put forward as a propitiation. And that means that wrath of God we talked about in chapter one, verse 18, has been propitiated, meaning satisfied. The blow has been absorbed, how? Through what Christ did on the cross, through his blood and righteousness. He's a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this is received by faith. Think with me for a moment at the cross. All the drama that went on in the last verses of the gospel. That time in Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. 
Philip Ryken noted that if I understand Gethsemane at all, it means that Jesus loves me even more than I can imagine. It is not just that he died for me, but that he died this horrible, damnable, God-forsaken death that no one would ever want to die. He died this death because there was no other way for sinners to be saved. No easier road to redemption, no alternative to the cross. We will never have to suffer what our Savior suffered in Gethsemane or at Calvary for the very reason that everything he suffered there was in our place, on our behalf. The lesson of Gethsemane is not that Jesus suffers with us, but that he suffered for us and accomplished our redemption to him be praised. So I think of the section in Matthew 27, which covers the crucifixion. Matthew writes, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, experienced the propitiation for our sins, that God's mercy might come to us who trust in him. Now think of the insanity Think of the blasphemy. Think of the belittlement of thinking that you could be right with God any other way than through what Jesus Christ accomplished. He's the propitiation for our sins. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Notice with me fourthly. We are in Romans to declare that salvation comes to sinners not by works that we have done, but by the grace through faith. Look at chapter two, verse four. And we keep looking at these recurring themes, but I want you to see them from different angles. Look at chapter two, verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Now we're thinking of God's kindness and his goodness. Do you presume on that? Well, how do I know if I'm presuming on God's kindness? Well, let's finish the verse. His kindness and his forbearance, that means patience with us. His kindness and forbearance and patience, not only that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. Every day is a gift from God. Every day is a demonstration of his patience and kindness and forbearance with you and with me calling us to repent, to turn from our course of action and to follow Jesus Christ. Look at chapter six, verse 23. In Romans six twenty-three, we read another component of the Roman road. For the wages of sin, the payment of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a declaration that is. The free gift of God. Salvation is the free gift of God. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. Tim Keller wrote, a changed life comes in response to the salvation offered as a free gift. That's how you come to know God. You receive the free gift of salvation by faith right now. How does that work out in real time? That means right now as you're sitting on this pew on August 6, 2023, and the, the truth of the gospel intersects your life, 
and you know that you need him. You're beginning to see him with the eyes of faith. You're believing the testimony that you're hearing from scripture. Your heart is warm, as John Wesley said of his own conversion, my heart is strangely warmed. It was strangely warmed as he was listening to Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. My heart was strangely warmed. And you know that you can't turn back. You've got you've to receive him and come to him. And you do so freely because of his regenerating work. So salvation comes to sinners not by works of righteousness, but by repentance and faith in Christ. Notice with me, fifthly, we're reminded in the book of Romans that the Christian life is a battle. We often say it's not a playground to live for Christ in this world. It's a battleground. We're to put on the full armor of God that we may stand against the schemes of the devil. We have the triumvirate of the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of those are ever-present realities for the believer. We have temptations on every side. We, we need to be reminded that living the Christian life is a battle. And in Romans 6, Paul speaks of this battle and he says we're not to present our members, our bodies, our lives as instruments of unrighteousness. We're to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness. And in chapter 7, he gives this struggle that we can all relate to. He says in chapter 7, verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. You ever been there? I sure have. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And I'm ever mindful of that as we gather on the Lord's day, that some of you have had a hard week. In one form or another, you've had a hard week. You've been slammed with temptations. You've done things that you're ashamed of. You've said things that, gosh, I'm glad that's not on the screen. And I want you to know we have good company with the Apostle Paul. And he he goes on to say, you know, I delight in the law of God, verse 22. I delight in the word in my inner being. I really do. But I'm dealing with a battle internally that I need help with. He he calls it a war. He says in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Oh, no, you shouldn't say that. You're the apostle Paul. You wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. You took the, the gospel to the Roman world. He said, wretched man that I am. Well, what does that, you know, do to my self-esteem if I think of myself in that term? It might deliver you from a blinding, besetting pride. That's one thing it might do. Oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am. He didn't stop there. Uh, Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is in verse 25. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've been delivered and I have a hope and I'm a new person in him. Look with me number six in chapter eight. To comfort the hurting with the assurance that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I love this. Once we come to be in Christ, there's no condemnation. We'll never be condemned. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said, not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he never can be. It's impossible. What does that highlight? The wonders and the glories of Christ's salvation. As the message of Christ is presented to you, you know, do you, do you own your own spiritual diagnosis? I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe the message of the Bible that points me to Christ. He, he, he says no condemnation. We don't feel the weight of what it means to be condemned because many of us have never heard the words of a judge or a jury say guilty. But in the courtroom of heaven, that's exactly the verdict. So in our journey through Romans, as we come to terms with our own sin and the relief that we find in Jesus Christ, to know that there's no condemnation. Oh, I hear this church family, hear this brother, sister. There's no condemnation in him. What do you mean? How does that apply? Well, there's no condemnation in your physical sufferings. God's not got his thumb on your life meeting out something you did in your teen years or something you did in your past. That's not the picture of Scripture. No condemnation in physical sufferings. No condemnation in marital difficulties. No condemnation. Divorce, no condemnation. Unfaithfulness, repentance in Christ brings a new slate, no condemnation long-term. You don't live your life in the penalty box outside of God's grace. No condemnation for failed parenting. No condemnation for failed efforts. A failed business venture. A failed ministry in the world's eyes anyway. No condemnation for failed courage. Is this a, is this a convenient, you know, pass on biblical obedience? By no means, which Paul says, God forbid. But only a reminder how often he comes to us and says, rise and walk. Finish the race. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why is this message so difficult for us to receive? Well, we have a past. And you've heard me say on a number of occasions, nothing drags more stubbornly than a sack of failures. We've got pasts. We have a conscience. We have a present. We have an enemy. But even still, we have a savior who is mighty to save, who's pledged to be with us. I think that's a wonderful promise. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then finally, to live joyfully because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is where we've been recently in Romans 8. It says in verse 9 of Romans 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the believers in, in the church of Rome. You're not in the flesh. That means you've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've, you've entered into a relationship with Christ, a saving faith relationship with him. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, notice what he's saying here. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're not left as an orphan to fend for yourself in this world. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, well, that person doesn't belong to him. That's a strong statement. And the assurance of the Spirit of God dwelling within us, calling us to be led by him. And this is the affirmation of true biblical assurance. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's where you find assurance of salvation. God's spirit bearing witness with my spirit that the promises of Christ have been appropriated to my life and I am in him and he is in me and I belong to Jesus Christ. I pray that's so for you. The spirit that raised Jesus from the grave dwells within the life and heart and soul of every child of God. I need to allow that truth to transform my life. Could I mention something else that isn't as prominent in these chapters in Romans, but one other thing as we lead to coming to the Lord's table, and that is that Jesus Christ is coming back again. One in every 13 verses in the New Testament speak to the second coming of Jesus Christ in one form or another. 23 of 27 books refer to the second coming. It, it could arguably be the central theme of the New Testament. He's coming back. Are you ready for him? What is our job until he comes? To make him known. To live for him now. Not to be lulled to sleep. To love the truth. To stand for righteousness to love his church and to be connected with great commission causes. That's the message we preach. After hearing the message of Romans, do you see your need for Jesus Christ? Salvation has come in Christ and this good news is offered right now to those who would repent of their sins and receive him by faith. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Would you come to him by faith today on these promises that his blood would wash you clean and you would be his child?